it's actually worth being optimistic. And perhaps in, you know, the most amazing thing with what you've achieved in the book is to get all three of those things in balance. That Keynes was an expert who was willing to change his mind and maintained his optimism through all of it. And all right, sometimes you go, wow, how did you maintain that optimism? But when you've got such a mind and such expertise and such openness to change, why wouldn't you stay optimistic? It's a brilliant point. It's a beautiful connection and just, you know, an amazing job you did of putting all the pieces together in that way. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. Sitting here in a woolly jumper and a woolly hat because it's freezing in Adelaide. Of course, we're in almost the dead of night and joined across literally the other side of the world by Zach Carter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's, uh, it's very early here in Northern Virginia in the United States, <laughs> but we're, we're handling a very humid morning. I made the assumption that you were going to be in Brooklyn. Uh, so apologies about that, but I'm glad that the time worked out still. <laughs> Yeah, we just uh, we sort of decamped from uh, from New York to my my in laws who live in uh, in Northern Virginia for uh, for childcare help. My wife and I have a ten month old. You know, she's learning all of these new things. There are all these animals that live. My in laws live in front of this creek, and so we see foxes and deer and and uh, you know she's she's learning the names of all these new animals. It's look as as lockdowns go. It's uh, I'm not having the worst time with COVID. Other people have it much worse than I do we've sort of made that point repeatedly that it's allowed us to read more books. <laughs> well, good. More I hope you read time. mine. <laughs> hey, one and a half times because I enjoyed it that much. It's great to hear. <laughs> Where to begin, I suppose, the logical thing. It's something that kept popping into my head being blind as I was listening to it. When you sort of make the point that Keynes is six foot six and they have to cram him in a sidecar to get into <laughs> London in 1914 to try and save the British economy. Is there a photo of that and how goofy does it look? There is not a photo of it, uh, but there are these uh, very interesting political cartoons of him where he looks kind of like a, like a giant spider where he's got this kind of bulbous head and bulbous belly and these skinny little arms and legs sticking out from some, you know, very fancy padded leather couch or sofa that he's sitting on. I'm, I myself am six foot two, and so I'm, I tend to be uncomfortable when I'm around people who are taller than I am because I'm just not used to it. Uh, it doesn't happen that often. And the thought of somebody like Keynes coming in and, and telling me, uh, you know, how the world really works about economics and looking down at me from, from five inches above, it, it's easy to see how the guy could be an intimidating persona. Yeah, particularly if he was good at gesticulating and got lost in his own mayhem. And I, and I think he did. You know, there was a... Um, a funny conversation between him and uh, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the U.S. president during the Depression and and World War II, Keynes just adored FDR. Just thought he was you know the world leader who embodied everything that that Keynes wanted a world leader to embody at that time. But FDR was just baffled by Keynes. He he came in in 1934 and just sort of gave him gave him the business with, with mathematics and, and all of this high economic theory. And, and FDR turned to, to some of his aides afterwards and said, 
I don't know what to make of this guy. You know, he, he, he must not really be a, a political economist. He must be some sort of mathematician. He gave me a whole rigmarole of figures and I don't know what to make of him. Yeah, I, I think he had, he had the capacity to be incredibly uh, adept at communicating his, these very complex ideas. And he also had the capacity to be, to be totally bewildering uh, if he just wasn't on his A game or if he, he didn't gauge his audience correctly. And I think his, his sort of social radar was generally pretty good, but when it was off, I mean, he, he, he could miss pretty hard. Yeah, it seems as your description in the book that the more his idealism is tugging at him to this has to work for the sake of the world, this has to work. And that seemed to be where he was going with FDR. I must get through to him. We must get along famously. He must be able to absorb as much of what I've written as possible and implement it as policy. So it seems the more desperate he is, the more he screwed things up. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say on that point because because he just, there are very few figures in public intellectual history who have the, the type of legacy that Keynes has, which is, I think, certainly in the United States and Europe, it's monumental, but who also had such a pathetic public record of achievement. You know, he lost almost every single policy battle he was involved with between the beginning of World War I and the beginning of World War II. Uh, he, he wins one very quickly at the outbreak of World War, World War I with the financial crisis, and then basically every piece of advice he gives to the British government is, is ignored or overruled for decades. So he didn't have a great, a great feel for the moment for most, of his, for most of his life. So it's hard for me to say that what it was in particular that, that made his repartee with Roosevelt so, <laughs> I guess, unflattering for him. Uh, but he did have this optimism about him. He believed that humanity's problems were created by humanity and could be solved by humanity and that economics was there to be sort of a tool for solving the problems. Not, I, th I think economists today look at economics as sort of this, this thing that you have to, this barrier to solving problems. We can't deal with this issue because economics stands in the way. Keynes didn't see it that way. He saw economics as a way to solve these, these big social problems. Uh, and he always started from how, how do you deal with the big social problem over here? And and then work your way backwards to the you know back back to the economic solution that will that will deal with it. He didn't start from okay, well, how much money do we have? So let's let's work from there and see uh, see how we deal with the the great problems of the day. Interesting thing, we have the descriptions in your book of FDR and him interacting. Do we know much about Keynes interacting with Churchill? Because these are two people that, for most of their careers are on the verge of being really, really important, but very often aren't listened to or misread a situation monumentally. And yet when World War II comes around, there couldn't have been two more important people ready to step into the breach than those two at the same time, despite being so very different to each other. Well, you know, we, we do have a, a pretty good record of, of Keynes and Churchill. Uh, Keynes's first major masterpiece is called The Economic Consequences of the Peace. It's his critique of the Treaty of Versailles and the, the sort of economic terms that, that the, the end of World War I set up for, for, the, for the globe. And he famously argued that this, this treaty would set the world up for dictatorship, ruin, and, and war because these debts and reparations that had been distributed around, uh, around Europe as a result of the war. He wrote a piece 
about six years later called The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill. Mm, and so, which seemed brutal. <laughs> it, it, it is brutal. It's just absolutely ruthless. Uh, and it, it argues that, uh, that, that Keynes and, I mean, it argues that Churchill essentially botched the major economic decision of, of his first stint uh, in, as, as a major figure in, in British government. Uh, well, that's not true. It, 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 his first stint as a major figure in British government was in, in World War I, but his first his stint in the Treasury- stint of yeah. going back onto gold. Yeah. Right, right. When he was in the cabinet. And so going back onto gold and particularly going back onto gold at the exchange rate that was at the pre-war level, this, this just devastated the British economy. Um, the, the British manufacturing sector just couldn't compete with the American manufacturing sector. And so wages had to either be completely destroyed for, uh, for workers or, or they would just not sell anything. Um, and this, this ultimately led to a, a, a total so social upheaval. There was a general strike in 1926 when just about everybody in, uh, who was a worker in Britain just just refused to go to work, and and the uh, the British government brought out tanks and and responded with military force. Uh, it's something that frankly reminds me quite a bit of the uprisings in the United States that we've seen over the last uh, couple of weeks. But Churchill didn't carry a grudge against Keynes because Churchill talked to Keynes throughout this entire period and took Keynes's advice and then chose not to follow it. And when it resulted in disaster, he said, "Well, you know." Keynes was right. Uh, I think there was there was a quote that he had somewhere in, uh, around 1930 where he said, "Everybody thinks that I was the worst Chancellor of the Exchequer who's ever lived, and now I agree. So it's unanimous." <laughs> you know, say what you will about Churchill, the man had a way with words. Uh, mm -hmm. And and so by the time they get to to World War II, there there isn't a lot of animosity. These these are people who are capable of learning from their mistakes. And uh, and and by the time they get to World War II, Churchill really trusts Keynes in this way that I think other politicians would not have. You know, if you if you give somebody advice, just I've you know been a political reporter in the United States for a couple of decades now, and you know if you give somebody advice, they don't follow it and it ends up in disaster in the United States. That politician hates you. They do not they do not think, oh, this is great. You're the smart guy. I should listen to you. Churchill did that. He said, okay, I should have followed Keynes. So this time I will. And, and if you look at the economic policy making throughout World War II and in the aftermath of World War II, Churchill, who is you know, a much more conservative guy than, than Keynes is, uh, is, is going on board with some fairly radical economic ideas that Keynes is, is putting forward and they work. Uh, you just have to say that it was, uh, it was a pairing that, uh, that was good for history. Yeah, it's sort of the argument we made uh, in January. You know, we had a conference here in Adelaide on sustainable prosperity and Stephanie Kelton was here and she oh, talked yeah. about how to pay for the war. And we sort of brought up the point with her when we interviewed her, look, Stephanie, so many people are starting to believe that MMT is a leftist policy position, not at all. How about we talk a bit more you know, about Keynes and World War II to show that a conservative politician like Churchill can take on radical ideas because they work. And that seemed to be the incredible thing with Keynes, for the people who could believe in him, there was so much potential that if you applied it at work. So the example you put forward in the book, that FDR essentially does Keynesian policy for his first term, loses a proportion of the vote in his second term, dials back the Keynesianism to a lower level, and most of the gains from the last three years disappear overnight. 
it, it's it's remarkable. Uh, you know, I look. I've known Stephanie for years. I have a great deal of respect for her. Uh, I I think. I think one of the the issues in the United States right now is that the the whole MMT thing is publicly taken up by people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, who are perceived as being you know radicals in the United States. Well, I think the rest of the world they would look like sort of moderate liberals. But the other sect of people who like these MMT ideas are Wall Street traders. <laughs> they they are they are not people who are interested in the sort of uh, you know egalitarian distributions of wealth that, that Stephanie uh, and, and myself are, are advocates of, mm. um, but they just see that this thing works and, and they can make money off of it. Um, and I think, you know, the MMT people get, I get a little lost, I'll be honest, when we, they get into these technicalities about Federal Reserve operations and, and how, how money is created through different maneuvers. But I think the basic idea there is, is, is essentially a Keynesian idea that, you know, in a post gold standard world where, where we can't run out of money because we're not tied to this specific resource that is gold, policy choices are, are, are value choices. They're not, they're not about how much stuff we have. Uh, and to the extent that they're about how much stuff we have, the resources that matters is not money, but actual material things like how much, how much wool we can produce, how many people we can get to the factories, what, uh, you know, what we've got in the mines. Those things are what matters, not, not these sort of accounting identities that are out here. And Keynes was always focused on that from a very early time because he was sort of this imperial manager for the British government beginning in, in World War I. You know, he, was, he was not just trying to make sure Britain didn't go broke or run out of money. He was trying to make sure they had enough you know, wool and cotton to make uniforms. They had enough steel to make guns. They, they had enough, you know, whatever it is that goes into tank engines, rubber and all these things. So he was concerned with, with how to actually make the things that needed to be made. And by the end of his life in 1942, he says, you know, look, anything we can actually do, we can afford. Because what it means to afford something is to be able to do it. And if we run out of money, if we're off the gold standard, we can always make more. The question is what, what sorts of social uh, uh, sort of consequences we are willing to brook to achieve those goals. And that, that is something that resonates very deeply with FDR, to your point. He didn't really get it from Keynes himself. He got it through his advisors who were Keynesian, uh, Keynesian disciples. But, but that, that point that, that we have these social problems that have to be met and we have to address those problems first and foremost, that, that's important to, to FDR because he's, he's trying to beat back, not only you know, by World War II, he's trying to beat back you know, fascism and Nazism in Europe, but very early in his administration, he's trying to beat back fascism and Nazism in the United States. There is a very prominent uh, movement for, for this uh, you know, right-wing militarism that's happening in, in the United States. I think in, in the book, I... I mentioned a, an episode in in Iowa where uh, a bunch of farmers threw a noose around the neck yes. of a yeah. uh, of a of a judge who was who was presiding over farm foreclosures and just dragged him out to some crossroads and almost almost killed him. Didn't, but these sorts of things were commonplace in the United States in the 1930s. And FDR knew that he had to do something big to not only capture the imagination of the country, but but to but to deal with the material welfare of these people to make to make them feel like like the government was looking out for them 
Otherwise, it would descend into the into the sort of madness that he was seeing uh, around the world. Keynes had the same sort of intuition about the way the world works. FDR put it into action as a as a statesman. Keynes as an economic theorist, but it's the same basic intuition. Yeah, and it's the fascinating thing about the importance of the disciples. In a sense, those young Americans who'd gone to Cambridge, studied, gone wow, gone home, and probably wondered if they could ever work as a professional economist. But because suddenly, under FDR's reforms and policies, you needed people to manage all these new things. And suddenly, you had this group of people who understood this core concept. And that is, we can do to the economy whatever we need to get the social outcome we value. That's, that's, that's basically right. And, uh, you know, I think the economics profession in the 1930s is very different from the economics profession today. Today, I think we think about economics and, and at least in the United States, we, we think about uh, American business schools and, and people who are in training to go work for big banks or big corporations. In the 1930s, it's a much more sort of hippy-dippy philosophical enterprise. There are people who go into economics because you know they're into philosophy, but they're also good at math. And Keynes is one of those people. People in the United States who feel like they just kind of don't fit into any academic discipline and who see that the job opportunities aren't terribly good, maybe you know, they probably come from middle-class backgrounds, decide to study economics and go to Cambridge because here's this guy who seems to be grappling with the big ideas of the day. And they go and study with him before he writes his big magnum opus, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. That's published in 1936. The guys who become really influential Keynesian disciples go because they've read a book that he published in 1930 called A Treatise on Money. And A Treatise on Money is a brilliant text, but it's a big mess. It's, it's almost 800 pages. He goes off on, you know, on, you know, why Shakespeare arose at a certain period of time. So he talks about, you know, the distribution of, of, of precious metals after the conquest of Alexander the Great. There's just all sorts of stuff that's in this thing. But there are some, some genuinely uh, important insights about the role of, of money and the state, and particularly the idea that, that money is a tool of, of rulership uh, and an ancient tool of rulership, that you can't separate money from governance. And, and so as a result of that, you can't have a free market, which is sort of the story that is told in, in economics at the time, and still, I think, largely today, that there's this sort of market that exists in a state of nature, and then the government comes in afterwards historically and starts intervening or manipulating that stuff. It, Keynes becomes convinced that that's not, not the case. Instead, the government creates money in order to deal with different social problems and then manages money in order to manage those, those issues. And so if you think of money as a tool of the state and a tool of governance, rather than something that sort of originates organically out of the ether, then the, the, the question of management doesn't become if, it becomes how. And, and that's a very different question than uh, economists are, are asking at the time. And, you know, I, I, think, I think for Keynes, th- this insight, he, he doesn't quite know what to do with it. You know, he spends, he spends several years grappling with the implications of it, and in some ways he's frightened by it. But eventually he realizes that this, this offers up a whole lot of social possibilities that he's always wanted to embrace. Uh, and then he, then, then he has to, you know, go out and convince the world. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the rate at which Keynesian ideas were picked up at the time. Seems like post-Keynesianism, as it went on, just was diluted Keynes. 
just continued to dilute itself over time because obviously now what we what, what we have now seems to represent very little of what he was talking about yet is noted as a, you know, one of the most significant economists of all time so or if not the most so it's interesting the, the way that we describe him because it you know as as we've kind of developed more into laissez-faire economics and, and all that kind of thing and economists have become accountants more than philosophers and i i'm interested in kind of how you would describe keynes as is perhaps the opposite as like a philosopher first and an accountant second as like a tool of his idealism let's say so he represents a brand of economists that that isn't afraid to kind of have let's say maybe like a not necessarily a political leaning but has a vision Moral judgments Moral yeah judgments a vision a vision that's that's great you know uh, and i think to get back to david's point you know his disciples in in the 1930s also had had this vision they are attracted to keynes because of the social vision not so much because of the equations in his in his work i mean if you read the uh the treatise on money it's it's kind of a big mess, but you can just tell this guy is onto something. He's 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 thinking big. He has he has a social vision, and so these people are the people who follow him, and they they make their way into the Roosevelt administration. That I I don't think that's really, you know, th- there are good economists today. I don't I don't want to dump on um, on the entire profession because there are a lot of people doing good work. You know, Stephanie Kelton I think very highly of. There are people like Marshall Steinbaum who are doing really good work on student debt in the United States. There are just a lot of people who are studying the problems of the day and and, and taking it very seriously. But the 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 wing of the profession that has power, at least in Washington D.C., where I, you know I've been a political reporter for a couple of decades, I I see this every day. Um, the wing of the profession that has power in D.C. is about saying no. It's not about saying how, and that's not about saying if. Uh, it it is it is designed to tell people that the problems that they want to solve just can't be solved because we can't afford it. And that was just not the way that Keynes saw the profession. He, he, he approached it, uh, you know, his, his friends when he was growing up, I shouldn't say growing up, uh, his friends when he was coming of age at, at Cambridge and uh, you know, as, as a young man, you know, these are people like Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, Bertrand Russell, Virginia Woolf. Uh, these are, these are serious artists and intellectuals. They're philosophers. And Keynes, you know, he studies economics with Alfred Marshall at, at Cambridge, but it's before Cambridge really has a formal economics department. So, you know, he gets into these debates with, with people like Friedrich Hayek later on in, in, in his life. And, and Hayek uh, lives much longer than Keynes does. And he's, he makes fun of Keynes for a while saying, you know, Keynes just was very ignorant of all of the uh, economic theory that was coming out of Austria. And I was just so much more learned. And he's right. Uh, but I think that learning did Hayek a disservice. He sort of got trapped in this way of thinking about the world that Keynes was able to to think outside of and say, well, well, look, we, we have to take what a good life is seriously, and we have to take what a good society looks like seriously, and then we can work on the economics stuff. The economics should not take priority over the social vision. We should We should be trying to figure out what kind of world we want to live in. Uh, we should not be trying to to you know, uh, obey the edicts of business accounting, uh, and and you know if, if the business accounting doesn't work, then we need to find another system of accounting. Essentially, yeah, and and there are parts of his life he becomes increasingly radical about his his sort of tactical maneuvers to achieve that social vision. But that social vision is there, you know, it, b- before World War One. I. I mean, he he thinks that the British Empire is this um, this sort of vehicle for prosperity 
and democracy and progress. And, and when he sees what happens in World War I, he is deeply disappointed in it. And so he says, okay, well, we, we have to figure out how to make it uh, a vehicle for, for progress and prosperity and democracy. And he largely fails in that project, but that vision is always there. The economics are always in service to the vision. That is not the way that most economists approach their profession today. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a local economist here who says a similar thing, which is Stephen Hale, who who talks about um, how oh, yeah, we yeah, so we shouldn't serve the economy, but the economy should serve us. Uh, yeah, David, you have a exactly question. Right. It's a fascinating bit in the book where you talk a couple of times about how he would get fixated for a few days at a time of trying to understand Babylonian money. You know, the how of why did the Babylonians create money? They must have had a reason. Oh, if you create money, then you can do policy. So it's kind of incredible to think that his insight is money came out of thin air. Oh, yeah. You know, you know I, I it's think... just an amazing thing to have worked out to go, hang on, if they can do it. Yeah, money's not the issue. It's the what we want to do with it is the bigger issue. And then again, realizing what it does later of resources. As long as you've got resources, everything else can be sorted. It, it's a really important insight. So he's, he's going through the Babylonian, uh, his, his Babylonian madness, he calls it. <laughs> At various stages of the 1920s, he gets very interested in it in the early 1920s, I think 1921, comes back to it again in 1926, and this resurfaces in the treatise on money in 1930. Mm. But, you know, I, I think... The, the conventional wisdom, to, to use a phrase that John Kenneth Galbraith, who's a, a great Keynesian economist, coined much later at the time, and I, I think still today, is that, is that coinage is, is the essence of money, that, that money is created once you start seeing pieces of metal stamped with rulers' faces on them. And, and that, you know, we can read our Herodotus, and, and Herodotus is basically right. This, this emerges in, you know, sometime in the 8th century BC. Uh, okay, so that's where we have coins. Keynes is, is reading these, these uh, other sort of unorthodox thinkers and, and historians and, and seeing, my goodness, it, it seems like the things that money does are being, that money is meant, these stamp coins are meant to achieve, is being achieved by rulers much, much earlier. And that money is really sort of an accounting principle. It's a, it's a, it's, it comes out of the existence of debt itself. That, that debt is this sort of sense of social obligation between rulers and ruled, and it can be managed by rulers and the ruled and has been throughout time. And this is an absolutely essential observation for Keynes because he says, look, you know, we, <laughs> there, there have been times in the past where, where rulers have deliberately inflated their currency in order to make the, the debts of the people go away without just you know, outright saying, I abolish the debts. At other times, they've just abolished debts. Uh, but he's very concerned about excessive debt and indebtedness. You know, before he is this great economic theorist, uh, you know, he writes The Economic Consequences of the Peace. And his major critique of the economic terms of the peace treaty that ended World War I is that the debts are just not going to be repaid. They will cause too much social harm. And so the right thing to do is to, is to wipe out the debt. And so he basically spends the rest of his life trying to figure out how to avoid the austerity politics that would be required uh, if you just have these astronomical debts on your, on your books. And he becomes increasingly creative about that over time. But this aha moment when he's studying ancient Babylonian currency, it's, it's really something, you know, if you read through the letters, there's a, 
there's a sort of uh, mystical power to them, I have to say. You know, it, it, there's a difference between reading his papers in, in the, the 30 volume collection that uh, Cambridge University Press has, has produced and, and seeing the specific actual letters that are there in his own hand that he's writing to, to mostly Lydia Lapakova, his wife. Um, in, in, in this period, he just is, you can see the excitement on the page. You can see how intensely he is feeling this, this thrill of, of, of Eureka, that, that this is, there's, there's this new idea. And I, I, have, I have come across something that changes everything. And he doesn't know what to do with it, but he's just so excited in the moment. You can just see it in the, the sort of tempo of the handwriting. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a remarkable thing. It was interesting as I was listening to that part of the book, I sort of made a note to self, when I've got time, go back now and reread David Graeber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Because that yeah, was sort of the book that got me into economics you know, more seriously. And it's like, okay, now I have to reread it. Now I know so much more about Keynes and about MMT and a few other things. So now I'm going to understand what Graeber wrote, I think, a lot better than I did the first time. David's a very smart guy, and uh, that you know I have a lot of respect for that book. But he doesn't understand Keynes. He sort of thinks that Keynes shrugs it off, and uh, and it, he says, "Well, Keynes figured this out, but then he left it behind." Uh, Keynes did not shrug it off and leave it behind. It is essential to the development of Keynesian thought and to the Keynesian social vision that uh, that proceeds. That that is a critique of David's book, but I think very highly of that book. So let me be very mm. clear: uh, I'm not a, I'm not a Graeber hater. No, again, that's why I want to reread it, because at the time I didn't know enough about Keynes to have an opinion one way or the other. In the book, you describe Keynes going to Russia to visit Lydia's family. How much did that affect him, sort of seeing what that different system was doing to people? Did that put more impetus on him that somehow you had to get economics right with freedom or was his commitment that freedom was always central that people should always have freedom was that their first or how do you think I, it affected him you know i think for Keynes, freedom and economics were always intertwined um he he believed that the the ability to participate in in a market was in some sense the ability to express preferences but he didn't think that the market was this thing that just, you know, was an agglomeration of, of, of preferences. He thought people were making decisions in under conditions of uncertainty. So he was always trying to figure out how to create an environment in which people could express freedom, um, which is a very different idea of freedom than I think most of the traditional liberals that he, uh, he admired had, had sort of come to the table with. But he did admire that, that liberal idea of, of individuality of freedom of expression, of freedom of thought, of, of cultural exchange. That was, that was very important to him. You know, when he went to Russia, he was always sort of on the fence about the Soviet project, you know, as, as a sort of upper middle class British, later elite fellow. He was, he was skeptical about this whole socialism project, but he was not as skeptical about it as other British elites at the time, you know, in, in 1922, he goes to this big conference at Genoa, and he basically is defending the Soviets and, and Lenin and the, 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 the push from the Soviet government to throw out the debts that had been accrued under the Tsar and saying, look, look that's, that, that government was illegitimate. It was authoritarian. Now we do democracy here in Russia you know, under the understanding of the Soviet government. Let's turn a new page. And Keynes, Keynes was 
very much on, on their side in that project. He lost, and the conference was a total disaster. But by 1926, he's married to Lydia Lavakova, who's you know, been living in London for some time. She's from St. Petersburg. And they go and visit her family. And, and Keynes is just, he's not impressed with the culture of Russia. It, it's not so much that he's thinking about Soviet economics as, as he's thinking about Soviet society. He feels like it's very sterile and very, um, I think what, what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche would describe as life denying. It's just not, it's not a vibrant place. It's, it's, it's gray and dreary. And, and he's, you know, it's not like he's in the, the vast wastes of Siberia. He's going to St. Petersburg. He's, he's going to Moscow. Uh, these are the, the big cultural centers of, of the Russian empire at that, that point, Soviet Russia. And he just feels like people are not happy. Uh, he doesn't seem like a pleasant and joyful place. And he, he does credit them. He says, you know, look, at least these people are committed to some project in, in, in Europe. For some reason, we're, we're committed to making sure that, that bankers' accounting books are, are maximized. We've, we've also lost sight of, of social prosperity because, you know, in the United States, at least, the Great Depression is this thing that starts in 1929. There's a stock market crash and then things go off the rails. But in Britain, it really starts in 1919. There is the, the slump, they call it, starts right after the war ends. And it's, it's going on for, uh, you know, for almost two decades, really, until, until the outbreak of World War II. And for, for Keynes, he, said, he, looks at, he looks at Russia and says, this is dreary and, and awful. But when I come back home, this is also dreary and awful. And, and so so is he, he, you know, I don't think he has the, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't have all the information about the gulags and everything at this, at this point in time. So he doesn't know about all of the, the abuses of the, the Soviet regime, but he just thinks this is not a great alternative to the system that we have in place here. And the system that we have in place here is not great either. So we need to do something different. We need to think about economics in a different way. And it's one of the, one of the ways that he sort of, is able to do creative economic thinking that's not in the Marxist tradition because he thinks that the Soviets by embrace, he's, he's always convinced that ideas are, are the driver of all history. And I think, you know, he, he may be naive on that front. I think he is naive on that front, but he says, well, you know, if, if, the, if, if this is what Marx creates, well, we don't want to do that. And if this is what David Ricardo creates in Britain, we don't want to do that. So we need to do something different. So I'm going to try to do Keynes. The wonderful thing, though, I think that comes out of the Russia trip that comes across in your book is his realisation that at least the communists are committed to something and they're the ones that's worth him arguing with when he's arguing with students and young economists because they're already committed. They want a social good from what they believe in so that if they're, he can move trying, them to a, right. a better social good, which is the opposite of you know the aristocratic elite just wanting to maintain privilege. So he's in a weird position that he so enjoys his wealth, does a very good job of looking like he's done well, but it's not that he wants to deny it to anyone else. He just wants to extend it further if possible. He, he wants to democratize that lifestyle. He thinks that it would be just a really fine thing if everybody could you know, have their hair cut by Virginia Woolf's sister while she regales you with uh, stories about Pablo Picasso's um, you know, studio in Montparnasse, which she just returned from while, while drinking champagne. I mean, isn't that a fine thing? Why, why shouldn't everybody do that? that? That's what he thinks the good life is, and he thinks everybody should have it. And he, and he comes to believe that economics, uh, that, that scarcity is not, you know, economic scarcity is not really a barrier to that, that, 
the the scarcity problem is really a a, a problem from a previous era of humanity. Now now we have problems of of distribution of power and of of uncertainty. You know, I think for Keynes, there's always this sense that the world is full of possibilities, and in some ways, those possibilities are. I think he's. I, I think you have to be honest and say he's. He's overly optimistic. He his optimism blinds him to political realities and makes it hard for him to implement his ideas. But if he doesn't have that optimism, he's never going to develop the ideas that become so critical and so influential. And and frankly, are quite you know when they're implemented, are quite successful at generating the kind of world that he wanted to live in. And that's sort of what becomes so obvious that you know, out of the ideas in World War Two where he basically helps work on the report that ends up leading to the creation of the National Health Service and other things in the UK and says, these things are possible. So you see people grab hold of the ideas, take them further, perhaps in ways he hadn't even imagined, and really transform what the world looks like in the couple of years after the war. I do think his sort of elite persona is part of that. I mean, people don't look at him as as a a wild-eyed radical or activist, they look at him as somebody who's a very sober analyst of, of the hard realities and, and somebody who's, who's been right over and over again you know, since, since the Treaty of Versailles. Um, so you know, he doesn't come up with the idea for the beverage report. He doesn't come up with the idea for the National Health Service, but he is the financial architect of it. Mm. Once beverage comes and talks to him, he, all the money and numbers stuff Keynes puts together, and even more than the money and numbers, he's the guy who brings it to Parliament to Whitehall and says, look, this is something that can be done. This is realistic. We can do this. And, and the government says, the government's not interested in this project. They, they sort, of, sort of cast it off to beverages as like, just leave us alone. Like, go, go and write your crazy report. The reason it's called the beverage report and not the treasury report is because the treasury didn't want anything to do with it. And so, so Keynes gives it legitimacy. He gives it, uh, he gives it this, this sense of prestige that makes people want to take up the idea. And of course, it's, you know, it's one of the most enormously successful social projects in, in, in history. You know, even today, when the EU and the UK are in total political turmoil, you know, the National Health Service is untouchable. They, they will not get rid of the National Health Service. That will not happen in our lifetimes. Uh, and, and I don't know if it ever will happen. Uh, I think we might be looking at, you know, uh, some sort of nuclear winter situation before they, they actually dismantle the National Health Service in, in Britain. Um, and, and it disproves a lot of what Keynes's critics have been saying. Um, you know, in the United States in particular, people, people look at what Keynes does with the National Health Service and, and what Britain does and say, oh, my God, this is one step away from Russian state absolutism. You know, they're, they're just about to go off the cliff into, into butchery and degradation. And, and of course, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just have years of, of, of prosperity. Uh, and, and when you do get into the, the sort of, you know, 60s and 70s stagnation, the kind of economic problems that you're facing at that point in time, while they're politically very uh, tumultuous, they're nothing like the Great Depression. And they're nothing like uh, the type of social upheaval that, uh, that, 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 that Keynes was afraid of. It, it, it became a, a really effective, I think, conservative tool at, fo- at fending off revolution, that, that people didn't have to worry about their health care. They, they would just be able to, to the extent that society could take care of them, they would be taken care of. 
and uh, you know, in the United States, we think of him as this deficit therapist, this guy who who thinks of you know spending money in recessions. But you know, his his only really great domestic policy achievement is the National Health Service. <laughs> he socialized British medicine. Um, that was a very ambitious thing to do. Very interesting too, because here in Australia we have one of the main post Keynesians, uh, Jeff Harcourt, who was taught by Joan Robinson. Mm. And we've still got to you know, sit down with him and, and do a recording. We just sort of put it off because of you know, the lockdown. But this is the incredible thing to think that out of these amazing ideas, you get people like Galbraith in America. You get smaller economic problems later on. But by the time these smaller economic problems are causing problems, none of the Keynesians really seem to be in the position anymore to be anything but reactionary. They get pulled out when, you know, Hayek's road to serfdom, you know, which unfortunately he accused Keynes of being the road to serfdom, but in reality, it's the other way around. It's like, oh dear, you know, neoliberalism hasn't worked, right? Break the Keynesian glass. Let's have some reactionary Keynesianism, fix the world temporarily, stick the scrubbing brush in our right ear, pretend we didn't do it, and then go back to laissez-faire again. It, it's 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 a remarkable transformation, you know. Um, Keynes spent much of his life trying to trying to use economic policy to prevent war, and yet by the nineteen sixties in the United States, mm -hmm. um, they're using Keynesian ideas and Keynesian tactics um, to prop up the American war machine. Yeah, the military-industrial complex is essentially the bit of the U.S. economy that's never stopped being Keynesian. Right, right. It's it's always there. Um, I, th I think since the 1960s, the other part is is also tax cuts for wealthy people that, that just never goes out of fashion in the United States. Uh, but but those those two things, um, you know, they become because the tax rates on 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 the highest incomes are are so high after after World War II. You know, they're they're over 90 percent in, in some cases. Um, that that's sort of a pot of money that can be unleashed and and used to to inject. Um, cashed into the economy, and and you know these these more conservative Keynesian economists are they, they never really embrace Keynes's theoretical underpinnings. They they embrace the tactical sort of uh, policy making choices that he has, but you know they're still living in a world where or in a theoretical universe where the chief economic problem facing society is scarcity. That there's not enough not enough stuff to go around. And that human beings are these rational actors who maximize their profits um, by by making rational decisions about about their financial well-being. And the basic point of Keynesian thought, I think, is that that's not true, right? That's just not right. the 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 fundamental condition of human beings is uncertainty about the future. It's not scarcity of resources. We, what does it mean to be a rational actor when we don't know what what the future will be? Bring. I think that's particularly uh, compelling right now when we have, you know, <laughs> my wife and I right now are trying to figure out whether we want to move back to New York. You know, uh, should we go back? I, I don't know. It, it's hard. It's hard to make this decision. Is the pandemic going to have another wave? Where will it be? We don't know. And so the idea that we're going to maximize our profits by making financially responsible decisions when we don't know how to deal with what, what the future will bring, it's, it's a little bit silly. And and I think Keynes was somebody who under who understood that point and took it to be not just not just sort of accidental or 
or an interesting footnote, but to be fundamental to the way that we should, we should make economic policy. And if, if uncertainty is the thing, then you need something to create a, a sense of, 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 of competence and a, and, a, and, a, and a belief that the future will be better than today. And you know, he did that through different, uh, you know, different mechanisms. I think the National Health Service is a particularly effective mechanism that he used to create that belief that tomorrow will be better than the day. People will just be taken care of on on their on their healthcare. Um, but it's you know that that's a that's a slippery thing, and it doesn't necessarily bend toward um, liberal or left wing policymaking. But it certainly doesn't bend toward this neoliberal uh, sort of. Um, let the market figure it out kind of 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 policymaking that that most of the world's large economies have been dedicating themselves to for the last uh, you know 30 or 40 years it seemed an interesting insight when after world war one and you know he decides he's going to play the stock market so he gets the money and initially does poorly and then has the insight oh it's not about working out what companies will do it's about working out what the other investors will do. And that seems to have been a huge insight that people aren't rational, but they get involved in the market to have more money, to have more resources, to be in a better position. So that's the real thing to make sense of. Everyone wants some sort of advantage or a better circumstance, but that doesn't mean they're ever going to be rational to get there. It's not that they're rational and it's not that they're irrational, right? It's that they don't know. And, mm. and so they're trying to make decisions and most of their decisions are based on these sort of guesses about what decisions other people are going to make. Mm. And I think if, you know, if you've ever spent time with the markets, you know, market reporting is one of the silliest uh, sort of traditions in, in American journalism right now. What, what is the thing that caused the market to go this way or that way today? You know, <laughs> that's just what they were, whatever it is, it's just what people were feeling that day. Uh, and, and Keynes, you know, he loses a lot of money, but his insight is right. You know, he, he makes a bet that, that a lot of currencies that have been devastated by the, uh, the Treaty of Versailles are going to weaken. And, and they do weaken over time. But when in the moment that he makes his bet, there's this sort of surge of irrational optimism about, uh, about how well the treaty is going to go. And, and so he just gets totally wrecked. I mean, he's, he's absolutely ruined in this period of time. His, his point, his belief about what was going on was true, but that's just not, not where the market went in, the, in those days. So his contracts were, were a total disaster. Uh, you know, he later on is, is gets, gets sort of the knack of guessing how people are going to think about things and makes a lot of money for himself and for, uh, for Cambridge University and for the British government. But, uh, but that, that's an important insight. And, and it's one of the reasons why I think you have this, th there is a breach between the economics profession and the financial profession where uh, people who are actually in these markets every day see how they work and see that they don't work the way that economics textbooks say they should. There's often a political alliance between these people because often the people who do very well in financial markets are very wealthy and want to see the sort of tax and social policies that um, the economics profession, which tends to be fairly conservative in the United States, um, wants, wants to see. Um, but, they, but they know that the, the story that economists are telling about the way the world works is not true. Uh, and and that's that's why you know you see so many of these traders who are into into people like Stephanie Kelton with whom they they certainly do not share the same sort of political values and and social vision but they 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 just know that the way that she understands understand the, the world is is the way right exactly is, is the way the world works. When 
sort of we look at what happens you know in america in the 50s that you know mccarthyism makes life very difficult for the keynesians because they they all seem to be too leftist they become targets what happens to sort of the keynesians like you give examples in the book of one guy who ends up going to columbia to work on a project ends up giving up his american citizenship then the Colombians have a revolution and becomes a dairy farmer. Was that the most extreme fall from grace for a young Keynesian or was there even weirder ones? Uh, you know, I, I think that, that, that case is this guy named Lachlan Curry uh, and, and Curry is targeted because he's Roosevelt's top economic advisor. So the reason they go after Curry is not because he's particularly dangerous or anything, but just because he's a, he's a real bigwig. And, and he's, he is also the guy in the Roosevelt administration who is recruiting all of these Keynesian economists in the 1920s, 1930s and, and 1940s um, to, to come into the administration. So if you take down that, that, that big star, then uh, you, know, you, you have the ability to, uh, to discredit this entire bureaucratic apparatus. So Curry takes it, takes it pretty, pretty hard. Uh, you know, I think in academia, there are all sorts of stories of careers that are derailed, destroyed. Um, Charles Kindleberger is, is one of the great Keynesian economic historians, and he spent years being subjected to loyalty tests from the FBI about whether he was really dedicated to America and the Constitution. And, you know, because he just thought that if you spent money in a recession, it would... Uh, <laughs> it would lift the economy out of uh, out of the doldrums, uh, but to be to be fair to the McCarthyists, and I know that's a controversial thing to say, but to be fair to the, the McCarthyists, the vision of Keynesian economics that emerges from the McCarthyist panic is very different from Keynesian economics going in. You know, people who understand Keynes and know about him know that he's not only a friend of the New Dealers. He is the guy who socializes British medicine. So there are these radical currents in Keynesianism that seem much more subversive and much more dangerous to the ruling elite in America than the ideas that become normalized as Keynesian in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, the, there, there is a social vision that the McCarthyists reject, that they're, they're, they're opposed to, that they're going after. It's not just a set of tools about the economy that they're, uh, that, that they're upset about. So they kind of keep the economic tools for emergencies and kill the social vision. Well, you know, ultimately, that's, um, that, that's how it's played out in the United States, certainly over the last 40 years. You know, we, we have infinite, infinite money, uh, to, to bail the economy out, you know, bail the rich people in the economy out when it goes off a cliff. But, you know, during, during normal times, we just let the market take care of the poor. We are about 85 days here from probably economic Armageddon when our government is going to turn off the Keynesian spending that is keeping millions of Australians in some sense of financial security, but also some sense of emotional and psychological calm. What's tended to have happened in the United States when you know, the reactionary Keynesian spending gets turned off? Do the Keynesian economists just get put back in their, their boxes and told to shut up until next time? Or do they warn and no one listens? Or what tends to happen there at these points where the crisis has been averted, 
and we're now go about to go back to the normal. Well, I think the Obama administration is a really great example, right? So th there is a, um, there, there's a, a huge effort to bail out the banks under Bush and Obama, um, basically successful. There's hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent by the federal government, but also trillions of dollars that are spent by the Federal Reserve to, to keep these banks afloat. And that money goes off, you know, a lot of it's spent even on dividends to bank shareholders, but bonuses became a, a really serious political flashpoint in the United States. These people at AIG taking home $700,000 bonuses after you know, the bank <laughs> failed. There's a lot of outrage about that. But very quickly after, after the bailouts and then after a, a quick 780-ish billion dollar stimulus package, much of which was in, in tax cuts, um, everybody sort of turns to austerity and and all of the there's this funny herd thing that happens where all of the economists start start looking around politically and seeing okay well what do we think is possible well we think we think that even the keynesians are like well well you know more stimulus just isn't possible so let's talk about doing austerity the right way and they start talking about the the the, the nicest way to cut social security, which is the federal retirement program for senior citizens yeah. here in the United States. So what, what's, what's, what's the least awful way to take money away from, from senior citizens? Let's, that becomes the focus of, of, the, of, of the, the politically salient thought. And ultimately that project didn't go anywhere in the Obama years. They weren't able to really decimate the social safety net, but they also weren't able to actually grow the economy in any substantive way. So we have this very long recovery. Uh, and, you know, the unrest that you're seeing in the, in the United States, in the streets today, in, in a lot of ways makes me feel optimistic about the country going forward, because we saw these outbreaks of unrest during the Obama years, but they were always localized. It was like in Ferguson, Missouri, mm -hmm. or it was Occupy Wall Street, or it was the Moral Mondays movement in, in North Carolina. But there was no sort of nationwide consensus the government wasn't working, that it wasn't answering to the people it was supposed to answer to. And I think, I think right now we're seeing uh, a case where the, the people really are furious and rightly so. Uh, and it, you know, the, the flashpoint in the United States is, is the death of George Floyd. And if you watch the video of George Floyd being killed by a police officer, a guy just leans on his neck for eight minutes mm -hmm. and 46 seconds. It's pretty horrifying. It's, it's, it's tough to watch. But unfortunately, in the United States, we see videos like that, maybe not every week, but certainly every month, and they don't lead to nationwide protests. And I think, I think the collapse of the economy in the United States is, um, is the impetus for this. That's happening, even though we have some pretty decent Keynesian spending in place under the, the coronavirus bailout bill, you know, in addition to the trillions of dollars that are going out the door to corporations, there's this $600 a week that's been added to, uh, to, to the unemployment relief bills. So people who are finding themselves out of a job in a lot of cases in the United States are actually making more money by not working than they were when they had to go to work. So they're able to take care of their families um, and pay the bills and, and maybe put a little bit of money aside. That runs out in, in July. And I don't see any political way for that to be renewed. I could I'd be thrilled to be proven wrong. Um, but, but it's very clear that the economy is, um, for most people in the United States, 
uh, economic policymaking is is sort of begging for crumbs while we we open the spigots for for the very wealthy. And I, I you know, we already have people in the streets. <laughs> I don't I don't know what what happens when you when you turn that off. It, it's it's not going to be, um, let's say, calm. It's not going to be pretty. I don't think so. I think, and and that's that's the sort of thing that Keynes was afraid of. You know, he yeah. Keynes didn't want revolutions. He didn't want people people rising up against their governments. He didn't want people on the streets. He thought that was it made him uncomfortable, made him nervous. He 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 thought it was sort of unseemly. Um, but but he thought the best way to to prevent it was to just you know take care of people, mm. <laughs> and he was willing to adopt some fairly radical proposals in order to prevent. Uh, prevent th those outcomes. The McCarthyists in the United States thought those radical proposals were just as bad as as the alternatives. So they they didn't believe in in this uh, this way of doing things. Hard hard to believe, but it's really what they what they thought. And you can go through their their records. You know, I spent a lot of time at the University of Oregon going through the papers of this guy named Merwin K. Hart, uh, who's sort of a footnote to history now, but at at the time was an enormously influential. Like, anti-Semite, um, just, just really American uh, authoritarian and, uh, and had, had a huge mailing list and was connected to some of the wealthiest people in the country, uh, oil barons, you know, major manufacturers. Um, and that thinking was, was really prevalent among American elites at the time. It's funny because the Republican Party today, Republicans are the conservative party in the United States, uh, you know, they govern in this reactionary Keynesian way when they're in power, typically. So we've seen under under Trump that the deficits balloon to like a trillion dollars, the biggest deficits we've ever seen in the United States, fueled by tax cuts and military spending. But now that there is a critical need for relief for the poor, uh, they're starting to talk about how how the debt is unsustainable. And uh, there are these different wings of the party that use economic policy to, pers to pursue different social goals and will tell a different story about how the world works when it suits them. Whereas the Democratic Party doesn't really tell a story about how the world works at all and just says, well, well hopefully it won't be that bad. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe we, can, we can do better than the Republicans. It sounds like our Labour Party here. Yeah, which is our sort of left of center. Yeah. Zach, I mean, that's a really good example of a, of the you know, very erudite political commentary that you're well known for. And it's interesting to see you go from things like that kind of political commentary into writing, I, I guess, yeah, a, a biography of one man, no less, which is, you know, on the broader scale of things that you're used to talking about, this is relatively specific. But I guess it, it goes to show just how influential this one man was and how much, he, how much his theories and, and parts of his life really explain a, a, a lot of the world today. Sure. Yeah, no, but, you know, I don't, I don't think, happy to be proven wrong, don't mean to insult Jack Lew, but, you know, Jack Lew was Treasury Secretary under President Obama after, after uh, Tim Geithner. He lost most of the policy battles he was involved with uh, on an international scale. Um, I... You know, I don't want to insult him, but I, I will be surprised if people are writing Jack Lou biographies in in 20 or 30 years, um, because I don't think Jack Lou is going to be held up as this legitimizing symbol for different wings of, of politics. For for Keynes, you know, his his life matters, not just because of the things that he did when he was alive, but because of what happens to him posthumously. He is a figure who is central 
to the intellectual debates about how politics works and how it ought to work in the United States today. And so as a political reporter, he's, he's a figure who I think you can still see people holding him up today. You know, they, they're talking about Keynesian stimulus all the time. What would Keynes do? And the fact that Keynes would have approved or disapproved is significant in this way. He's not just some guy. He's not just Jack Lew, right? Uh, and and I, you know, you can see that as a political reporter. So so he is somebody who. There are very few intellectual figures who carry that kind of uh, that that aura of of substance that Keynes does in in Washington, and and you can see that even with with conservatives who don't agree with his social vision, they're like, well, yeah, but Keynes was a pretty smart guy. Uh, so if, if that's what Keynes would have done, then we have to take it seriously. Uh, whereas liberals are like, well, that's what Keynes would have done, but, but the world really can't be that good. So, so let's, let's take it down a notch. <laughs> As someone with an immediate degree myself, I studied uh, philosophy and, and, uh, and, and, and journalism in my undergrad, but I'm, I'm kind of interested to know how becoming so learned and specifically this topic has influenced the way that you may continue and i know it's only just recently out so this is this the period that i'm talking about now is literally a month so but how being so learned about this specific topic has kind of influenced the way that you might report things like how is the inherent um kind of keynesian bias let's say <laughs> uh, uh, kind of uh, affecting I mean, and perhaps you held these views before you wrote this book but how how is it affecting how you're you're perceiving and reporting on I guess some of the political goings on in in, in the U.S. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's it's difficult to answer because it's always hard to to see within you know your own soul in in these ways. You know, I was I was a very radical person when I was young. Um, I played in punk rock bands. Um, that's that was my job before cool. I, I was a writer. So yeah, I was man, I was so cool. Now I'm just a dork. Um, but you know, I started my career in in journalism at, at a trade publication, and and was really stamped by the prevailing ideology of of the trade publication, which was the prevailing ideology of the banking industry at the time. Um, I didn't particularly want to be covering the banking industry. I thought that was kind of lame and boring and dull. I was, you know, I I was forced to take a real job after I came back from a particularly disastrous punk rock tour, and. And and I saw that you know it, but but in that newsroom, you know, when you're around people who have a, a certain set of ideas and they just talk to you, they don't have to beat it into your head. Just their assumptions and the the way that they think that you know a story might be written and and the right kind of angles for for what is newsworthy, you take that on in, in a way. Uh, no matter how strong your your intellect and how um, how independent your mind is, you you do adopt the thinking of people around you. We had CNBC, which is the cable news financial channel on every day. You're just getting these ideas pumped into your head con constantly, whether you realize their ideas or not. And the financial crisis of 2008 really shook me because I saw that all of a sudden, everything that everybody had been saying about you know, the wisdom of rational financial markets and the stupidity of government um, was was suddenly threw out the window and everybody wanted to see the government spend enormously to save the financial sector. And, they, and it was very clear that the person who was, you know, sort of the intellectual, um, you know, juggernaut behind this was, uh, was John Maynard Keynes. Um, but as I studied his stuff, you could, just sell, you could just see Keynes didn't have any particular love for banks. You know, he didn't hate banks either, but you know, he, he didn't think that the, the goal of economic policy was to save banks when you had a huge crisis. 
there was a lot more going on there. He was afraid of, he was concerned with the major issues of the day. I, I, I first tried to read the general theory. Uh, yeah, this is 2008. And, and it's, that book is hard to read. It is not well written. It is a nasty mess. And so I read the economic consequences of the piece instead. And that book is beautiful. Um, it's just a wonderful book. And, and I, I found that deeply, deeply compelling. So it's hard for me to say, to get back to your question, whether I had these ideas before or whether Keynes shaped me. Um, I, think, I think there was something that I had coming to Keynes that resonated with his ideas when I, when I was um, approached with them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that I really liked about this project was the, the process of learning. You know, when, when you're a reporter, there's this sort of double bind in the United States where you're supposed to be knowledgeable about everything because otherwise, why, what right do you have to tell people how the world is and to report on, on great affairs? But you're also supposed to be asking questions and learning and uncovering new information. So how can you both be the great sage genius who knows everything and also someone who's uncovering new information at the same time? Uh, that's, that's a paradox. And, and frankly, I think most reporters you know, are stuck. They're, they have to sort of pick one or the other and they're often afraid to, to, to sort of stick their necks out and be, um, be sort of public intellectuals or they're not allowed to do that. Um, they just don't have a lot of great options. I work at a place, uh, HuffPost, where I, you know, I'm allowed to, to wear whatever hat I like. Um, so I, I'm very grateful for that. But I, I, I definitely think that the process of studying Keynes has made me a better reporter and that it's made me more intellectually curious and more, um, you know, Keynes is somebody who changed his mind all the time and was unabashed about changing his mind. Uh, he, he goes from, from being this enthusiast of the gold standard to being uh, a monetarist, to inventing a whole new way of understanding economics, uh, to socializing British medicine. And at no point does he say, well, it would be bad if I changed my mind, because then people will look back and say, aha, you used to think about this differently. Look at you now, you've changed your mind. He just, just says, well, no, this, this is the way that we should do things. He was intellectually uh, adventurous in a way that I find very admirable. Um, and I think that makes it easier to report. I think um, you know, his, his ideas, there, there is a Keynesian sort of tactic in economics that, that exists, but the Keynesian ethos is really much more about uh, optimism, belief in the future, intellectual flexibility that, you know, I, I just find those ideas to be inherently compelling. I think they're, I think they're really kind of traditional enlightenment liberal ideals. And it, it would be better if, if everybody had the opportunity that I've had to, to sort of embrace them. It's a really optimistic account that I think you give of the role that journalists should play, or, or let's say the media should play. And I'm really pleased to hear that that's the that the the huff post have have the huffington post have given you kind of that freedom to 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 wear whatever hat you would like and that there is this kind of blend between a public intellectual and a, a, a reporter because that from the outside you know looking at let's say fox news um or the variety of media examples we have here in australia that our media landscape is doing us a massive disservice and i think if anything 
you know, I, I think that in, in politics, but I think as especially in economics, it, it, because it is so intrinsically tied to politics that we just have the most woeful account of of economics and that's part due to what it's become now and 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 perhaps part due to audience disinterest and and then part due to the way that it's reported because you know if if you look at it from the keynesian perspective it is something that you bring a vision to and is then and is kind of a tool to 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 make that real and the way that the the economics are reported or at least uh, are talked about you know i think in probably either of our countries in the mainstream is is a is a lot narrower and it's boring it's it's basically accounting principles you know it's always and, a barrier it's never a tool right but, there's but, always yeah. this wall in front of you that you can't get over instead of oh yeah yeah let's you know let's tinker with this it's, uh, yeah 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 it's you know and and perhaps when the political discourse meets that <laughs> meets that barrier of economics it's when people kind of turn off I mean, we have a huge problem with voter disinterest and, and um, voter fatigue in the United States where people just don't participate in the political process. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in the United States, you know, we have, we have this particularly bad, uh, you know, racist history. Um, and so a lot of voter suppression is, is very deliberate and intentional. And, and that's that's all bad, and you know I, I'm opposed to that. But but I also think the the fact that so many people are just turned off from the political system is is sort of an undercovered issue. People just don't believe that the future will be better than today, or that politicians in either party, because we only have two in the United States, are, are looking out for them, and so they they don't participate. They're they're not part of it, and they're not being unreasonable by by doing so. You know, we we had. After the George Floyd killing, there was this big political stunt that Democratic Party leaders did in the Capitol, where they they all put on kente cloths, these you know woven, uh, you know I, I think from Ghana traditional things, and and kneeled and and prayed for a while in a moment of silence, which is very nice. Like okay, it's it's nice that you you want to honor this this guy in this way, but you know you have the power to set policy, just just do your job. And they don't, they don't want to do it. They're, they're afraid to do their jobs in a lot of cases because they're afraid they might scare off particular sec- segments of the vote. It's a, very, it's a very frustrating time. And that's why you see so many people in the streets in, mm. in the United States today. If, if they had a channel through which to express their beliefs and views in the, in the sort of formal political system, they wouldn't be out in the streets. But they're out in the streets because they don't feel like they have that avenue for expression. And journalism is a, is a tricky it's a tricky profession because I, you know, I, I tend not to, to try to participate in these pylons in the media because there's so much, you know, Donald Trump's calling us the you know, enemy of the people and using this openly Stalinist language. It's, it's, mm. it's a hard time to be a journalist, but, but, you know, in a lot of ways, American journalism often parrots the ideas of the American elite. And that is, you know, not always the best way to serve the public that, that these journalists want want to serve, and I don't think you know Fox News. You you raise an example, Fox News. I, I it's it's hard for me to believe that the people at Fox News are operating in in good faith most of the time, but I, I know there are exceptions. But I just you know it it it's it's become a propaganda network for for the president. Mm. But but in other places, it's it's much subtler. You know, you just talk to people. It's it's sort of like what happened to me when I was working at at a trade publication. You just sort of 
intuit the ideas of the people who you talk to and they become part of your ordinary way of thinking about the world. And it's not a nefarious thing. It's not an attempt to be dishonest. It's just your sort of gut feelings about things sort of move in this particular direction. Um, and that's a very hard thing to deal with because if you're going to have prestigious media institutions, they're going to be uh, sort of, sort of uh, close to the elite. And it's very hard mm. to tell the country what the world is and ought to be like when, uh, when you're mostly talking to and, and moving among uh, that, that particularly narrow segment of the country. I do think economic policy has a place to play here. If inequality is not quite so bad, this problem for the media is, is much easier to deal with. If the elite aren't so far away from the rest of the country, if you don't have this breakaway wealth where we have, you know, 400 families in the United States that just live these, you know, superhuman lives, um, and those are the people you talk to when you're, you're doing your reporting, uh, you know, that, that is a, a, different, a different world. And so, you know, I, I think in some sense, the, the media could be more responsible if we just had a more egalitarian society. But you, there's, you know, there's an interaction between these things. How do you get to the more egalitarian society? Yeah, it's kind of cyclical in that sense. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm particularly, I'm particularly worried, worried about this. And, and I guess you're an interesting case in this sense, because you're at, the, at this kind of um, cross point between being given this book, what I would call an economist, to the extent that you understand it well enough that that's, a, a, I think, a fitting d a title, even even if you don't necessarily feel that you actually, oh, I'm not sure. Have you done uh, any university study in this? You know, I took Econ 101, but uh, oh, okay. But, yeah, look, th th there are okay. a lot of these people who become economists. I, I, I will take this as a compliment and 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 have the, <laughs> the humility to agree with you. <laughs> but you're you're in you're in that kind of sweet spot because you because uh, you're able to report on it and you're an economist, right? So um, it's it's interesting. I I kind of want to ask. It it seems we've just discussed how we are reactionary Keynesians or, or, or even let's say I'm um, kind of selective Keynesians in the sense that we, we um, adopt Keynesian thought for the favor of the rich and, and, and drop it, uh, uh, drop it out of favor of the poor. Sure. And uh, it's n not reported on in, in let's say uh, it's not reported on adequately. And, and, and let's say, you know, something like Fox news is, is a, um, a, a media puppet for um, hegemonic forces is it in do you think very consciously in the hegemony's favor to kind of ignore Keynesian thought to not be able to have these kinds of kinds of thoughts uh, in public discourse yeah that's a good question it's a tough one to answer um, I guess <laughs> Sorry. all good questions are tough <laughs> ones to answer uh, you know I, there's th there's this sense in which I think what people understand to be reasonable and good sense in economics in mainstream American discourse is just um, denying the possibility of change and that the world can only be so good and that it can't really get any better. And I, I think you see this sort of pessimism reflected not only in conservative politics, but in um, the general outlook of Democrats. You know, uh, Joe Biden just won a crushing victory in the Democratic Party primary in the United States, um, despite running on basically nothing, right? Or, or, or the Obama legacy. And, and, you know, the Obama legacy is, you know, Obama did some good things, but, you know, <laughs> Obama led to Trump. So, so it couldn't have been that good, right? Um, I, I think, um, 
I think when you look at the voter enthusiasm levels for for what what people are going to vote for, Biden supporters say they're you know five to one voting against Trump rather than for Biden. Trump supporters say they're four to one voting for Trump rather than against Biden. Um, this shows that people overwhelmingly rushed to Biden, um, not because they liked him, but because they just didn't believe that a bigger and better future was possible. There were multiple candidates in the race, um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, who were talking about uh, big ideas and big changes. I think Julian Castro is also one of them, um, who, were, who were speaking directly to the deep problems that we have in the United States. And, and the Democratic Party just didn't believe that, that a better world was possible. And, and to me, part of that is, is probably coming from the economics profession and the, the idea that economics is about telling us that we can only have so much and that there's not enough to go around and we, we can't make a better world. But part of, part of the reason that the economics profession, th there are economists who are doing good work who are not doing that, right? And those people don't get traction. And part of the reason they don't get traction is because of this underlying pessimism about how bad the world is. And I think if you look at the decay of American society over the last four decades, the worse things get, the harder it is to garner the sort of optimism necessary to make a change. And that, that's something that Keynes lived with during his life. You know, he, he starts with World War I and he goes through the Great Depression and he's trying to fend off World War II the whole time. And he fails because people just won't believe in the future that he believes in. And that, that's his big problem. It's not British politics. It's not the conservatives. It's not the liberals or the Labor Party. It's just that the country doesn't, the country loves to read his articles in newspapers because it makes them, makes them feel better for, for an hour or a day. But they fundamentally, in their in their hearts, don't believe that the future that he's promising can, can come about. And it's very hard to conjure that kind of belief when things get bad. So, uh, who knows? You know, hopefully we're at a we're at an inflection point in the United States where um, where you know there are people in the streets. I mean, this is yeah. this is this yeah. is serious. This is real. Uh, and and you know, you're seeing democracy happen at its most basic level. Um, and that's that to me is is inspiring and good. And I would have liked to have seen it over the last decade many times. We just didn't. But I think certain, not at a national level anyway. And and I just mm -hmm. think you just hope that people people can believe a, a, a major. It's important to have figures like Keynes though out there saying like, hey, it's okay. It's, you can be legit and be optimistic. That's all right. You're not you're not losing your seriousness by believing in a better world. You're not just some, you know, some some you know, weirdo dreamer, you know, this is, this is a normal, important, prestigious thing to do. Yeah. I, I, it's a fresh take. Uh, I actually, I kind of, you've made me think a lot, actually. It's, it's changed my perspective on some things, but you know, I'm, I, I too am kind of hoping that that pessimism just doesn't turn into aggression because it's the only option left. I, I fear that we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'm going to open it up to David, if he has any final comments or questions. Yeah. Just to revisit something from a couple of minutes ago, which I found I just had a little light bulb moment. I want to make sure I say thanks for it. But when you were talking about what a journalist in America is meant to be, that you're meant to be an expert so that you're allowed to tell people how the world works, but then also you're meant to ask questions and how do you balance those two things? And I was reflecting on the fact that whether I'm teaching an intensive short course or teaching in universities, it's too easy to come across as the expert and the people you're teaching or training don't see that actually 
you're always asking questions and you're open to change your mind. And the main reason you stay open to changing your mind taps into where we finished then with, because it's actually worth being optimistic. And perhaps you know, the most amazing thing with what you've achieved in the book is to get all three of those things in balance. That Keynes was an expert who was willing to change his mind and maintained his optimism through all of it. And all right, sometimes you go, wow, how did you maintain that optimism? But when you've got such a mind and such expertise and such openness to change, why wouldn't you stay optimistic? It's a brilliant point. It's a beautiful connection and just, you know, an amazing job you did of putting all the pieces together in that way. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been really nice talking to you. Yeah, we've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been, it's been fascinating and I am, I barely even noticed that it's way past my bedtime. So <laughs> like midnight over there. Oh, cool. no, quite. Close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this is great. It's really great to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Take care. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.